Our scripture reading this morning is coming from Psalm 16, and after I read, then the kids can go out. This is the word of the Lord. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. just about to start speaking, but I don't want to frighten the little ones. So we've called this series Sex a Better Story. Do you see why I wanted to let them go? Just um, Let me remind you very quickly of the journey so far because we uh, had a break in our series. We had uh, Dave Gray with us here last week. It was lovely to have Dave and to hear about his work at Queen's University and the chaplaincy there. Um, Our culture's view of uh, sex and sexuality is almost unrecognizable uh, from what it would have been, say, 50 years ago uh, to the world of our forefathers and foremothers uh, growing up in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, The the sexual revolution birthed in the 1960s uh, 
started a change in thinking about sex and sexuality. It, it wasn't just in that time, though. It, it really started something that has been uh, continuing ever since. And it's probably fair to say that we're in a, an accelerated uh, season of uh, change uh, when we think in the culture about these subjects at the moment. So if I, if I mention, for example, same-sex marriage or the rise of transgenderism and the, the entrance and uh, occurrence of, of that, I'm giving you a couple of prominent examples of things that we weren't thinking about even a few years ago, but that are very much at the fore in our culture just now. So in our first talk in this series, we, um, we talked a little bit about that, uh, that I suppose, the, some of the ideas in the culture that led to the sexual revolution. Uh, we talked about uh, an idea in the, the, the philosophical sort of landscape, the idea of radical individualism. Radical individualism, we says, manifests itself in a rejection of authority. Um, individualism, in a balanced kind of a way, might ask questions of authorities and try to find a good balance. Radical individualism says, no, uh, there's no such thing as a good authority. We will uh, get rid of all authorities. It, it promises a lot, this, this way of thinking, this way of life, radical individualism, promises total freedom and in the case of the sexual revolution, uh, better sex and more sex. In contemporary culture, that um, uh, revolution's expressed itself in, in a drive to, uh, I suppose, take the greatest freedom of all. And if, if this idea hasn't st stuck with you yet, try to grasp it today. At the moment, there's a, a move in the culture for the freedom to define ourselves. If you haven't noticed that before or thought about that or understood that, it's probably an important thing to try and understand. Um, in a way that probably no culture before us has ever said, we, we want the freedom to define ourselves. Um, so if I'm a man and I want to sleep with a man, we say that's okay. And if I'm a woman but want to transition into being a man, we say that that's okay too. Those are expressions of radical individualism, the pushing back against all boundaries and authorities. In the second talk in our series, uh, Stephen gave us a couple of weeks ago, he asked a few questions of the revolution. Has it delivered more sex? Well, the statistics say no. We're having less sex than ever, apparently. Now, by the way, how do they measure this? Has anyone ever asked you? Like, stopped you in the street, the pollster with the clipboard, you know, in the last month? H have they? Um, they haven't asked me. Maybe, maybe they didn't want to. So the, the, the statistics tell us um, that actually the, the revolution didn't deliver in terms of more people having more sex than ever. I suppose we'd want to ask a bigger question even than that. Has it delivered in terms of general well-being and happiness? Is Britain in 2018 a happier place than it was 50 or 60 years ago? It's, uh, I had to look this up. The Summer of Love, 
this sort of iconic moment in the, the 60s, the, the sexual revolution, was 1967, so we're just over 50 years past uh, that moment in the culture. Are we happier than we were back then? Again, the data says no. There's hardly a week that passes where I don't read some headlines about the kids who are growing up now being more stressed and less happy than any generation that's gone before them. I, 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 I don't know, but I don't know how you feel when you read, you know those league tables that they publish about sort of happiness or quality of life and Britain's always in the relegation zone? I, I'm, I'm waiting to be dropped out of the bottom into the second tier. You know, there's just a sense that people who are trying to ask these questions about how happy we are aren't sure that we're as happy as we hoped we might be. So the sexual revolution hasn't delivered on sex and maybe hasn't even delivered on, on life uh, and general well-being and happiness. Stephen finished his sermon a couple of weeks ago asking a question where he asked us, do we really believe that we have a better story than the story that our culture tells about sex and sexuality? That's where we need to come to today. We need to talk about our better story. Just before I do that, I want to be careful in case somebody here misunderstands me today. I need to tell you what I'm not going to be talking about. I am not going to be calling you back to 1950s morality or Victorian morality. And neither am I going to call you back to all the dysfunction that we can find around sex and sexuality in the church, throughout the history of the church. The church often has been a place that's been ashamed of the body and full of repressed sexuality. It's been a place of sexual abuse. We know those stories only too well. It's been a place of hypocrisy where we make a really big deal of, of one thing, saying one thing, but end up doing another. So this month, it's, it's David Simpson of the DUP. The newspapers aren't blind to the hypocrisy of a, a DUP MP uh, being caught having an affair. They describe him as a one-time gospel singer an ardent opponent of equal marriage for same-sex couples, Simpson has spoken of how he seeks guidance from God every day. That's how the newspapers are reporting that. And the reader is saying, yeah, David, you say you're seeking guidance from God. Did God tell you to leave your wife and run off and have that affair? The church is full of hypocrisy about sex. This month it's David Simpson, and next month it'll be somebody else, and the next month another. Michael Curry, the guy who gave that rousing sermon yesterday in the, the royal wedding, in January of this year he was responding to the hashtag MeToo movement, and he said that churches must examine their history and come to a fuller understanding of how they have handled or mishandled cases of sexual harassment exploitation and abuse through the years. I could go on and we could talk about that all morning, but we're not going to. I'm simply making a point that whenever I talk about God's better story, if you hear me saying 
the church has got this right and the culture's got this wrong, wouldn't it be wonderful if everyone in the culture was behaving like we were in the church? Then you're hearing me wrong. The church has this every bit as wrong as the culture. We are all sexual sinners. I maybe need to pause for a moment to allow you to hear that and engage with it and see if you can agree. While you're pondering that, I'll tell you that I am a sexual sinner. My sexuality is just one more sphere of my utter brokenness. So, this is why I'm grateful for a better story, that God has better things for me and for us. I, for one, want to hear that story, and I want to learn to live by it. You might remember that when, in that first sermon, as we got towards the end of it, I said, let's start to talk about the better story. And I took you to Genesis 1, and we read there in Genesis 1 about the creation account of human beings. God created man and woman, or sorry, man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We said that day that sex is not an arbitrary thing. Our sex is part of God's beautiful design. And we saw in Genesis 1 that God looked at everything that he'd made, everything including the male and female human beings, and he said that they were very good. I shared with you a phrase uh, from Marilyn Robinson, and I invited you to celebrate with me what she calls the givenness of things. God gives us a beautiful world with his beautiful design, and sex is a good gift then given by a loving God. I want to take that idea and basically spend this morning looking at it in terms of what difference that would make if we believed that, what would that look like in the kind of environment where we're trying to, to believe that story? What would it look like in a world of radical individualism of gender confusion and dysphoria for us to learn to celebrate the givenness of things, God's creation order. In his book, A Better Story, Glenn Harrison suggests five uh, pillars of Christian marriage that come from living in the light of God's reality. So we're going to look at five great themes in God's better story. The first is this. God has spoken so I don't have to figure it all out for myself. The Bible's better story of sex and sexuality begins not with us, not with how I feel or what's going on inside me, but with God. And in the world of radical individualism, it's different than that. In that world, I get to define who I am. I have a freedom, as I say, that my forefathers never had and probably were never reaching for, the freedom to define myself. One quick observation about this freedom, at the moment uh, it feels to me like nothing is more cherished in the culture than this freedom of self-definition. I get to be who I want to be. 
one thing I'd, I'd ask you to pause and reflect on, is it possible that that freedom will soon become a burden, that I have to find the true me, that I have to work out who I really am, a burden that folks will not be able to escape. I, I see people around me today being crushed by that burden. In biblical Christianity, we say that God has made us, that He's made us male and female in His image. So, I don't have to figure this out for myself. Even in those moments when I might be f troubled by some aspects of my uh, sexuality, even in those moments when confusion reigns, I can learn to trust Him. I don't have to figure this all out for myself. Let me make one important comment at this uh, moment. I've been talking about our sex as being a God-given thing, that we're male and female. For the vast majority of human beings, that is true. There are, however, a very small number of people for whom that isn't strictly true. Intersex people are born with uh, any of uh, several varieties of our variations in their sex characteristics, including their chromosomes, their gonads, their sex hormones, or their genitals. And as a result, they don't fit typical definitions of what is a male or a female. So while we affirm the givenness of our sex, we need to be mindful of the reality and sensitive to the experience of intersex people and their families. So the first thing we say is that God has spoken. We don't need to work all this out for ourselves. Second, God welcomes human beings into His reality. We don't stand above or separate from the reality that God has created. We're part of it. In other words, we're creatures, and this makes all the difference in the world. If I'm a created person, then I have a creator. My posture towards uh, my life in this world changes. It means that rather than defining for myself how life works, I pay attention to what the Creator tells me and the, the life that they invite me to. So there's a feel of, of submission and humility that's maybe not so present in the current culture. I don't want to elaborate on that today, but I'm asking you to think about that. Are you okay with that? I suppose I'm asking you, does the doctrine of creation, the reality that God created you, does that play a part in how you think about yourself? It has to. It's monumental in terms of your self-understanding makes all the world of a difference to say I'm created by God or to say I'm here uh, by a product of random processes. A third part of this better story, a third foundational truth, we flourish as human beings when we go with the grain rather than against the grain of God's design, God's reality. 
In a book written probably round about the time of the original sexual revolution, Charles Hummel wrote a book called Becoming Free, and he explains that freedom isn't quite as simple as we think. It isn't simply throwing off all the restraints. And he gives an example. He says that a fish is only free as long as it's in the water. Let's imagine for a moment a fish with an inclination towards radical individualism. I don't want to live by the rules. I won't let them define me. I won't let nature define me. I'm going to come out of the water and I'm going to go and live on the land. That fish could choose to, to seek life on those terms beyond its, its natural, its given habitat, but if it does that, it will die. You see, true freedom isn't the absence of restriction. True freedom f comes from finding the right restrictions, to notice where the lines fall, and to play the game of life in the right ballpark. If we're looking for the right restrictions, the ones that keep me healthy and allow me to flourish and keep me alive, that's what we're about. Here's another way of looking at it. Do you remember the dreams you had of growing up when you were a kid? I'm not talking about the, the sort of advanced, sophisticated ones. I'm talking about the really simple ones. I'll, I'll tell you how they went for me, and you might recognize this. I can't wait to be grown up because I'll be able to stay up as late as I like. Yeah? People recognize that? Once I'm a bit older, I'll be able to watch whatever I like on TV. In a few years' time, I won't have people telling me what I can eat and when I can eat it. I will be free. And of course, most of us in this room by now are at the stage where all those massive freedoms are available to us. We can stay up as late as we like, we can watch whatever we like, and we can eat popcorn and Haagen-Dazs till the cows come home. But tell me this, what happens after you've done your first, your second, your third Netflix Haagen-Dazs popcorn all-nighters? Does life get better? Or do you find yourself adjusting and saying, oh, I have those freedoms, but turns out that pushing them all to their limits isn't bringing me life. True freedom isn't the absence of restriction. True freedom comes from finding the right restrictions, the ones that get me healthy, help me flourish, and keep me alive. True in all areas of life, and true, I think, when we talk about sex. A fourth uh, pillar, if you like, or theme in this great story, this beautiful story, we have been given our identity, and it's beautiful. We've been made in the image of God. That's what you were made for, to show the world what God is like. We have been saved by Jesus Christ. 
At the cost of his own life, he bought me and you. We are vehicles of God's Holy Spirit in this world. That's the, that's the craziest thing that we believe, I think. That everywhere I go, God's Spirit goes. And no matter how much I'm hiding him, occasionally he bursts out. Listen, folks, we all have characteristics. We have things that in a complex way make up our total identity. There's our gender, our race, our nationality, our sexuality. These things are important. But I think we've got to get beyond the current practice of taking one of these uh, parts of our identity and making it definitive, making it our identity, our whole identity. What do I mean by that? I mean that I'm a male of German origin who is currently a British citizen who is heterosexual in orientation and practice. That's who I am. Those things are important, but not one of them comes close to defining me. I know who I am. I am a much-loved son of God a brother of Jesus Christ, a carrier of God's Spirit in this world. Everything else about me is way down my list of identity markers. I've been given an identity, and I love it. And you've offered that same identity too. Can I tell you what's great about that identity I've just described? It's not mine to find it, as though I could miss it and choose the wrong identity. And it's not mine even to guard it, because if it was, it might depend on how good I feel one day or on how bad I feel the next day. It's a given identity. It's not standing on the the, the sands of my self-identification, but it stands instead on the rock. It's God-given. Erica read the, the passage for us a moment ago. It's not a passage that contributes directly to this question of, of sex and sexuality. I think it's a brilliant psalm of identity where the psalmist tells us who he is and I've really enjoyed, there's one verse in particular that stood out to me for the last couple of years ago. Uh, I read a couple of years ago, I should say. Psalm 16, verse 8. David said, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Find him. Lock on to him and then stand. A fifth and a final theme in this better story. No matter what happens, God is good. This is hard. I'm using Glenn Harrison's five categories here. We know that God is good because He's demonstrated that to us. He's shown us that in His, His love, giving His Son for us, Jesus, and coming to, to die for us. 
But in a broken and distorted world, it can be hard to believe this. And I, I find this hard in this whole area of fallen sex and sexuality. So, for example, where is God's goodness in the case of a an adult who's still traumatized by the child abuse they experienced 30 or 40 years ago. That's going to take a bit, of, a bit of searching to see where God's goodness is there. Why can't we just agree with a family that's pursuing assisted suicide for a member of their family who's, who's suffering without hope of relief? Where does all our God-created stuff fit in with that? What is wrong with supporting the same-sex couple who seems so happy in their relationship and it seems so life-giving to them? There are these cases and lots of others that, that you maybe are carrying with you as you walk with family and friends. Um, they, they stand, I think, as real challenges to this idea that God is good and that His way is best. And I sense I'm going to struggle with these for the rest of my life. We could have a go at answering them, but in the end, I think there's a, there's a mystery around all human suffering. If, if God's created such a beautiful world and if it's, it's so very good, why, why do we suffer so much in relation to, to that? Folks, there's a mystery here. There are some things in life that only God knows and sees. There are lots of things that we can't understand, but there's one thing that we can be sure of. When we confront our own suffering or the suffering of others, we, we recognize that our God has entered into our human suffering. He's lived as a man of sorrows. He suffered unjust abuse, and he's died at the hands of cruel men. It doesn't answer… well, I was going to say it doesn't answer any of our questions. It doesn't answer most of our questions. But what I think that reality does, and I want you to hear this, I think it gives us a basis to trust Him. That's maybe all. To trust Him for the things that are as yet unanswered, that He loves us, and that He would give His very life for us. We can't let go of that in any of these questions and debates. So God has spoken, and we're not alone. He welcomes us into His reality, not one of our own making. We flourish when we work with the grain uh, of His greater reality. God, only, God not only reveals who He is, He reveals who we are too. And no matter what happens, we know that God is good. These are our five biblical pillars, I think, for understanding sex and sexuality. This is where we begin to find the better story. Okay, now you're thinking, well, Christoph, if that's it, that's not going to fly in my office tomorrow. 
That's not going to work with my neighbor or that member of my family that I'm talking to. Don't be too pessimistic about that. Don't let's give up just yet. There was a, a Roman poet, Horace, and he said an interesting thing uh, a couple of millennia ago. He said, you may drive out nature with a pitchfork, yet she still will hurry back. We are, we are that generation that's driving nature out with a pitchfork. Don't tell me who I'm created to be. Don't tell me what I am. I'll define all that myself. You may drive nature out with a pitchfork, yet she may hurry back still. Folks, reality has a way of um, coming back, making itself known once more. And we're living in a time where although new boundaries are being pressed, I think at the same time people are becoming disillusioned with the life that's been delivered by the revolution. I just wonder if our culture might be ready to hear God's better story again sooner than we might imagine. We're going to talk about that a bit more before we wrap up this series. By now you'll see that we haven't dealt with um, any particular hot topics, if you like, around these questions of sexuality and gender. It's not that we don't know what they are, and it's not that we don't know some things to say about them. It's that we don't want to miss this opportunity to, to start telling a, a broader, better story, and that's what we've been trying to do. The particular issues around sex and sexuality are really important, and I want you to know that I think they're important. So I'm going to name some resources. Uh, what, I'm going to raise some of the issues, some of the resources that we're aware of that might prove helpful to you. Uh, they might answer a particular question that you have. So the book that we're basing this whole series on is um, Glenn Harrison's A Better Story. This is for somebody who wants to understand the, the, the worldview behind our thinking about sex and sexuality and also how Christian people need to, to see that they have a better story to tell. It's not specifically on any of the topics, but it deals uh, in a bigger way with the, the bigger issue. So I, I would recommend that. I think it's a fabulous book. A second book we would recommend, Sam Albury, Is God Anti-Gay? Um, Sam is himself a same-sex attracted Christian person and writes from that position and perspective. I, I met him here uh, maybe about a year ago. Uh, really great guy. He works in a local church. He works in all sorts of other areas too, but he has taken time to, to reflect on this qu question of homosexuality um, and, and Christianity. Is God anti-gay? Another one, Vaughn Roberts. Um, I like the way these books are quite strongly different colors. It means even if your eyesight's not great, you won't take the wrong one home, all right? Make sure you get the right color. Um, the red one is the porn one, okay? Um, so Vaughn Roberts has written a book, quite a, the, these are quite short introductions. Um, I, I suppose where I'm coming from, I'm saying I want anybody in the pew to be able to, to read something to get them started, you're, you're welcome to, to go much further, of course. The, the porn uh, problem, Vaughn Roberts is another 
guy I've met. Interestingly, uh, Vaughn Roberts, I think, has, uh, has also expressed that he has struggled at times in his life with same-sex attraction, but he's chosen to, to look at these questions of sex and sexuality and write on them. So this is one of his books, uh, The Porn Problem. Next Sunday, we're doing our one single topic in this series. We're doing a, a one-stop look at pornography. So come along then and you get a chance to hear about that. The next book to show is Transgender. So the whole, the whole questions, the, the raft of questions, you, you I'm going to guess in the room, we're, we have a wide range of views about this and levels of understanding and interest. Uh, this book would be, uh, as I say, a primer. It would be something to get somebody started uh, and maybe help them to find a way forward into to further reading. We have copies of those three, those last three books, Transgender, Pornography, and Anti-Gay. They're all up here at the front. We bought in a few copies of them. They're available for three pounds each. You lift the book and you put three pounds in the tub, and that's it. All right. Podcasts, a couple of podcasts, we'll send these out uh, this week. Um, these are ones that I've listened to that I found very helpful. Sam Albury talking about singleness and our on misconceptions about singleness. I found it brilliant. There are different reasons why people are single if you think about it. A person can be single because they were once married and their partner has left them or died. A person can be single because they are not yet married and don't want to be. A person can be single but would love to be married. Or a person can be single because they maybe have struggles with same-sex attraction but they want to honor God and choose to live a, a celibate life. Sam Albury is somebody who writes on homosexuality but also singleness. And in his case, those two are related. There's a podcast I enjoyed. It's simply called, Is This the End of Gender? And it, it really goes into the questions of gender, transgender, gender dysphoria, um, and, and explains a lot. I find it very informative. So if you're somebody who's interested in that, we'll send you a link to that. Um, we, I think we've already given links to the, the couple of wee videos that we showed a couple of weeks ago. Um, there it is. There, there are some things here that, that might help you get started in your thinking about some of these uh, specific subjects. I'm going to wrap things up now and just pray. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, thank you for giving us a few moments to reflect on what, what you have said to us in your word when we've thought about the, the story that you've told, the framework that you've in place for us as we can consider our sex and our sexuality. Lord, that last idea that whatever happens, you are good, 
Lord, that's probably the one where we struggle most, to trust you with our hurts and our brokenness and our fallenness and those of our families and our friends. Lord, I pray that today you'd come close to us, reassure us of your unfailing love for us, and help us believe that your way is the good way and you offer it to us because you love us and you want our best. Help us to pursue you and your ways and to find that therein lies life and health and flourishing. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.